everybody, and welcome to another taping of Unscripted Equity Curiosity, Season 2, Episode 6. Today is uh, not a normal session for us because we've got a guest. And so the special guest, and no, the special guest is not Andrew, uh, who we usually put in the hot seat. Today, the special guest is RF Joshi. RF was my roommate in college. And he is here today to bring a shitstorm of stories <laughs> that we cannot say on air. Um, RF is the man, a managing director at Lazard Asset Management. After graduating from Wharton, uh, he went and did strategic management consulting. After which he did he was at Columbia Business School with an MBA in finance, and most recently he runs an emerging market debt fund, the fixed income debt fund um, at Lazard. So if you go to his profile at Lazard and you see a picture, just know that that's the photo from first semester freshman year. And he does not look like that anymore at all. Um, I, was, so just, I was just I was just looking at it on the call and uh, I, I think he looks younger. So I don't know. Yeah. What you're about. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more hair. We'll put it that way. Um, and today, before I jump into questions on ARF, uh, we're just going to dedicate today's session to um, Michael Ho, uh, a blessed memory, who was our third college roommate who passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, Mike was in our world, and he was an asset manager. He was uh, a mutual fund person uh, for a long time, had a very successful career in mutual funds, left that to go to hedge funds. Um, you know, and then it was an up year and then it was a down year and an up year and a down year. And, you know, in our world, um, there's, if you, uh, you can get twisted around a little bit and the volatility, which I think is probably apropos today, the volatility of our world can sometimes, uh, lead to people having, uh, volatility in their personal lives and, and in their own mental state. And so the dedication today is uh, that everybody listening and all of us should, should reach out to people who uh, we think might be struggling with all of this and to reach out to them and remind them to get help and also to remind them, uh, and for all of you who are listening, just uh, to remember that uh, the world we live in is, is a live to play another day world. You know, you lose a fortune today, you wake up tomorrow, you win it back. Um, and that's the world we live in. So without any more heaviness, let's move on. RF, um, you have a crazy job because you're investing a massive amount of AUM. Can you tell us how many, how, much, how big is the fund right now? Uh, $12.5 billion. You, you're investing $12.5 billion and you have to invest it in emerging market debt, which sounds like a cluster at all times, doesn't it? I mean, to me, it does. And you've got to fly and you fly all over the world. You meet with these crazy people and they're telling you why their country is going to go in the straight and narrow. We are going to be backed like the United States. We will be triple A, quadruple A. And you have to like walk out of there being like, sometimes you believe and sometimes you don't. So I guess my first question is, who was the craziest dictator you ever met or despot? Seriously, what was like the craziest setup you ever walked into like Burundi or like some crazy stuff? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Let's start with that. Uh, all right. All right. 
Thank you for your for your guests. I'm glad you set the bar low by always just having Andrew in the hot seat, and uh, you you brought in you brought in the fixed income guys. Remember, only listen for all. I'm assuming most of your listeners are equity people. Oh. Only listen to your fixed income portfolio manager at the inflection points before um, an economy takes off and right before the economy Ooh. goes into recession. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that hanging Wait, out there. No, 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 no. no yeah. We, no, 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 no. You know, I don't, I don't know. We can end it. No, we're going to start there. And Ami's question is good, but I want to hear, I want to, that's a good way to wrap it. Tell us. Okay. You're talking about the two and the 10. I'm taught, yeah, but let me answer your first question. That's a more oh, exciting. Um, so here, look, here's the exciting part about emerging markets. There are 76 countries that issue emerging market debt out there. This is basically everywhere except the developers: Africa, Asia, Latin America, Eastern Europe, everywhere. Um, and it's purely defined by how wealthy the country is. That's it. So at, at a certain point, you graduate out of emerging markets. Greece at one point graduated out of emerging markets. And in 2011, 2012, Greece uh, got demoted back into emerging markets and now is back out. So it's purely based on wealth. Um, and the crazy part, and this is exciting for me, crazy for, for other people, is that the average emerging market country, when you line up their stats, and this, so Ami's a big basketball fan, so he knows this uh, from his well, NCAA now and, and when he used to dribble off his foot when he used to play against me. Um, but when you line up all the balance sheet stats of an emerging market country versus a developed market country, more times than not, the emerging market country will have a better balance sheet than the developed market country. So let me just go through some numbers with you. Uh, overall debt, U.S. over 90% of GDP. So 90% of the economy of the U.S. Is, is how much debt we have. Europe is at similar numbers. Japan's at 250%. The average emerging market country is around 53%. So significantly less debt uh, in emerging markets. Fiscal accounts. Ami, since you're an equity guy, you know what the U.S. fiscal deficit was last year? 20-something. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think it came, ended up coming in at 13-something. Double-digit fiscal deficits in the United States. The average emerging market country is around four. Current account. So I know this is back to economics 101 days. Current account, simply a difference between what you're importing and what you're exporting. The U.S. always runs a current account deficit. We import a ton more than we export, even as we became energy uh, balanced in the United States. Uh, we run a larger current account deficit than most countries out there. Yet, the U.S. stock market has outperformed almost every other stock market for over a decade. The U.S. fixed income market has outperformed most fixed income markets out there. Most people, and for any of your listeners who grew up in an emerging market country, the first thing you did when you attained any wealth was you converted to U.S. dollars. And you did not keep that currency in wherever country you were. Um, if you go visit people in emerging market countries, they literally have dollars under their mattresses and in their closets. Um, and, and so when you think about emerging markets, 
you always have to remember that emerging market countries play by different rules than the developed world. And unfortunately, they're worse rules. Emerging market countries and companies have to run better balance sheets, have to generate more cash because it's riskier in these countries. We don't have, like the United States, 250 years of relatively good institutions. What the, the whole Trump, you know, Jan 6, that was a rounding error compared to what happens in most emerging market countries. And so this is a well-earned position of privilege that the United States has. Yes, absolutely. If we continue to do things like we've been doing recently, sure, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, we may lose that position of privilege. Uh, but the, the beauty of what has happened in the U.S. over the last couple hundred years, it, is, it has afforded us the ability to do the crazy things that we've done in the U.S. over the last 15 years. The unlimited printing of money, the massive um, trillion dollar reactions, multiple trillion dollar reactions to COVID. Um, all of these things are as a result of running pretty good books for the previous 200 years. It will take emerging market countries a while to be able to get to that level. That's why you get paid more. So to wrap that up, and this is, this is in, in fixed income, there is a general rule. If you're getting paid a higher yield, meaning a higher coupon, it's because you're taking more leverage risk. That is not the case in emerging markets. You're actually taking less leverage risk. You're taking more institutional quality risk. That is why you get paid more in the app. And so this is a long way to get back to Ami's original question, which is our job and my job when I go to these emerging market countries is I go and meet with decision makers, the finance minister, the head of the central bank, the prime minister, the president, depending on the size of the country. And I'm trying to figure out, along with our team, do they have the proper policy in place do they have the flexibility when something goes wrong? Uh, and what are the institutions in that country in case um, the, the people in power either switch because of an election or switch for another reason? And that ultimately, when I'm in these countries, is what I'm uh, uh, trying to figure out how to do. I promise I'm going to answer your question, which is the craziest recent country um, is certainly Russia. So I had a conference call with Vladimir Putin about a year ago, give or take, I, I, was, uh, I had to wait six hours on a Zoom waiting room uh, to be able to finally talk to him. I was instructed that I had to refer to him, I think as his excellency, I can't quite Come remember. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll give him credit for this, which is that every year he holds a session for foreign, foreign investors and will answer any question that they ask. He'll answer. He might not answer to, to how you want him to answer it. And he also holds a session every year domestically. And those sessions tend to go on six, eight, nine hours. Um, but uh, I did ask him about, again, a year ago about the ruble, uh, about you know, what changes um, he was envisioning if as the polls were predicting at the time, Biden would win the presidency. Um, so, you know, in this job, you get to meet a lot of interesting people, uh, both good and, and bad. And, and look, there are, there, are, there are countries in EM which have done an amazing job of re-rating, of developing themselves, the Asian tigers that you guys probably invested in already, um, all the way to countries which used to be the cream of the crop. Argentina 
100 years ago was the sixth richest country on earth. And it's the same country. I mean, think about, uh, I forgot, I think Maradona used to say that Argentina was crafted by God. Well, Argentina as a country, for you guys who have traveled there, or if you're playing World and it comes up on your, um, uh, on, on your uh, daily feed, uh, Argentina is a country where the minerals and the, the fertile farmland is all up north. There are natural rivers that go from the north to the south. They naturally open up into these deep sea ports. Um, they have fantastic land. Their education system came from Western Europe. They have an immense amount of talent infrastructure in that country. And so Argentina went from the sixth, war, sixth richest country on earth to defaulting multiple times over a hundred year period simply because of um, uh, poor institutions, poor policy, poor policy makers. Um, and they turned something which was, um, you know, one of the one of the major selling points around the world to a country that is in multiple defaults. So policy matters is, is my conclusion. Policy really matters in EM. Um, you can get away with a lot more in the developed world. Okay, so so portfolio management question around that. Um, I'm guessing like for the, I'll throw something at you and then you can shoot it down and tell me how you do it. But I'm guessing that for the most part, something like two thirds of your portfolio, you're, you've got, uh, you're investing in countries who are, uh, obviously they're EM, they're not developed, but they are, their institutions are very stable and the yield is probably lower than some of the riskier places but like, you're not worried about waking up one morning and there's a Reichstag fire or whatever it is. And like, there's a beer hall putsch and there's suddenly like a, de a despot taking over. And you have to obviously monitor those places to make sure that there's no massive, like sudden crack that you could lose all your money there, but that's most of it. And then I'm guessing maybe like a third of your portfolio is you're looking for those inflections. Like, okay, Biden fl flies down to Venezuela. Obviously Venezuela is not in the portfolio. I'm guessing it isn't, but then like, well, actually, if the enemy of the enemy of my my enemy's enemy is my friend, maybe like Venezuela is going to come back and it should be in the portfolio. Like, how do you balance in the portfolio, like the stable places that are like developed markets and then like looking for those opportunities that have higher yield and also better price appreciation? Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the numbers are about 85 percent of the countries in emerging markets um, you can uh, sleep well at night, not worrying about a massive 180 degree change if the politics change. Um, it said this is an asset class, which is now borderline investment grade, just to give you a sense. Um, and you're right. You get paid a lot more in yields. So we get paid six to seven percent yields wow. for this borderline investment grade asset class. So wow. it's significant. Sorry, is, that, is, is that U.S. dollars or is it local currency? It's U.S. dollars. Okay. So. Andrew, I'm keeping you apples to apples, keeping you honest. Um, and so, yeah, you get paid a lot, but that's why people come into emerging market debt is, is they say, okay, hold on. The balance sheets are better. It's borderline investment grade. 80, some 85% of these countries have reasonable institutions. Um, there's a lot of um, attraction uh, there if these countries do the right thing. And you're right. Then there's the 15% which is remember as a, as a fixed income guy, I only care about two things. I care about your ability to pay me back and I care about your willingness to pay me back. Ability is a balance sheet item. All those things I talked about earlier, 
And that, you know, we, we like every emerging market debt manager, we're going to have heat maps and it'll show what a country is doing better versus another. In this environment, oil's at 115, grain prices are through the roof, um, copper prices are through the roof, everything else being equal. The world is a better place for the balance sheets of emerging market countries today than it was three months ago. Yet, emerging market valuations are all lower. So the bottom up ability to pay you back is better today. Our prices should be higher, not lower. So keep that in mind. Then there's a willingness to pay issue. And, and Ami, you brought up a great example, Venezuela. So this country, um, you know, oil production goes from 3.2 million barrels a day 15 years ago down to 0.5 million barrels a day uh, two years ago. Completely implodes. No one wants the Bolivar. Everything is transacted in Venezuela in U.S. dollars. Um, it's the only country uh, I've been in where I witnessed a carjacking in person right next wow. to me uh, while I was uh, in between meetings. Um, dangerous place, a massive exodus of highly talented oil workers over to Colombia, up to Alberta um, as a result of the politics there. Uh, and yet, because of what's happening in Russia, suddenly the U.S. is reengaging. And so you're right, that can have a dramatic impact on valuations. And, and remember, there's also politics out there, um, you know, uh, to take some of the Middle Eastern countries, the Egypts, the Jordans, the Moroccos, these countries may not look very good on their balance sheets, but they get significant aid from the West, specifically the U.S., sometimes the IMF. They're strategically important uh, to the West. And so as a result of that, they tend to trade tighter than what their balance sheets would suggest. Got it. Okay. I think Andrew wanted to pop in with a couple of questions. I, I did have a question about uh, talking about Russia and Argentina. I guess if you think through kind of a, and obviously scenario analysis is always difficult, but when you have a country like Russia go through what it's going through, what is the path to kind of getting in, in, you know, institutional investment back? Right. You know, like, do, like, does do, do we need a new like does Putin have to get replaced? Like, I, I'm just curious, like how you think about it, because obviously with all the sanctions and all these companies leaving capital leaves very quickly, but it doesn't but it tends to return very slowly. Um, and so from your seat, I'm curious, like what you would think would be required over what duration to get back to kind of where we were or close to it and. Yeah. And any nuance would you, I'd appreciate. Yeah. I'm just, I'm so, so Wall Street, by its very nature, is a greed business. So the direct answer to your question is uh, when, when the potential returns are high enough, the money will come back, um, contingent on the U.S. government. That's my nuanced answer, which is yep. whenever sanctions get removed and there's enough of an expected return to compensate you for that risk, the money will all go back. Um, the, in, in the case of Venezuela, it's still a sanctioned country. So as a, an American, you cannot buy Venezuelan debt. You cannot buy Venezuelan equities. Uh, that's a U.S. sanction rule. As soon as the U.S. takes that sanction off, most managers would buy Venezuelan debt now because it trades at eight cents on the dollar. All of Venezuela's wealth is underground. That wealth has increased, not decreased over the last four years because oil prices have gone up, not down. Uh, the interest by the international oil majors is higher today than what it was five years ago. 
Um, so to directly answer your question, in order for people to go back in Russia, the sanctions have to come off. And that's a moving target, right? Because originally the sanctions in Venezuela were incumbent upon fair and free elections, a bunch of other things to happen. And that may change over time. It might change with whatever president uh, is in office. But you know, my, my view, at least at this point, is Russia is very, very far away from meaning certainly not in 2022, but you know, even a big question going forward um, of coming off of a U.S. sanctions list. Got it. Thank you. Okay, so I think Felix had one also, but we'll come we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, just coming back to my original question, um, were you ever in a meeting with like a despot or dictator where he like took out his gun and put it on the table? Um, that sounds like a leading question. So, but let's see. <laughs> I have, well, it's funny because I've never been in a meeting in an emerging market country where that happened. I have been in a meeting in the United States where that happened. <laughs> okay. Was there, um, were you, I, I don't want to know what you were supposed to do after the gun came out. Um, we'll we'll well, skip to the so next question. Point, I, I've seen a lot more guns in strange places, in places I wouldn't have guessed in the United States than I've seen in emerging market countries. The last one being in a uh, gas station on my way up to Vermont about three weeks ago, where I went in to buy some antifreeze, and uh, there were six guys in camouflage, all with Glocks in their hands. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's just a, a normal day in Vermont. A scarier place in many cases than emerging mm -hmm. markets are. True. Um, okay, let me. I want to go back to the uh, the gas thing because you mentioned like Venezuela, you know, the stuff under the ground, etc. Um, I think is Israel emerging market or is it developed emerging it's, market? It's on, it's on the cusp. It's so it's it's wealthy enough as a country to not be in emerging markets, uh, but some of the corporates in Israel technically are part of emerging markets. Okay, so so question about that is they have this like massive offshore gas deposit, etc. Like, why wouldn't Europe just start getting their gas there instead of from Russia? Wouldn't that, yeah. that is, is that like, is that the kind of thing that you're like, okay, that's a catalyst. So I buy those bonds. Is that the kind of. Yeah. Look, if, 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 if we thought a catalyst uh, was within a year, absolutely. Um, and, uh -huh. and we, we see how this is going to play out. The U S has the potential to be a massive LNG exporter. Obviously we don't have the capacity right now, but there is the place if there's enough money thrown there or incentive uh, where the U.S. can be a massive exporter. Israel has a, uh, a massive find offshore. Mozambique has a huge find offshore. Qatar, Malaysia, Indonesia, these are all places where Western Europe should be getting their natural gas from uh, in order not to have to get their natural gas from Russia. And that is, at this pace, that is where this is going. Um, and there's, I mean, Biden is, is in Poland, not because he wants to really go greet the troops, but because under, under the surface, um, you better believe that the U.S. oil and gas uh, companies are uh, trying to get long-term take-or-pay agreements with Western Europe. Um, and once you have that in place, the LNG facilities become very low-risk projects to, to fund uh, in capital markets. So Biden uh, is like a chief salesman for Exxon, essentially, or something like that. The, the, the difference there between Biden and, and uh, Trump is Trump would have told you that. Um, outright and would have cheerleaded it. Biden probably will deny it. But there is a great strategic um, interest here uh, between the U.S. and Europe, between uh, friends of Europe uh, in, in the Middle East and, and Africa. 
Awesome. Um, I want to ask a question about from tech perspective, um, and this will maybe touch on China, so so Felix can get involved. Um, Vietnam has been building itself up as like a alternative to China and supply chain. I know there's they're not the only one, right? Malaysia's there, Indonesia's there. I mean, Singapore to some degree used to try to do that. Um, to what to what extent like does that at all register within your like investment approach? Do you say okay, like this country that's EM, like they're gonna have better percentage of the overall supply chain it's a growth category they're going to have more wealth you know and therefore i go along the bonds or do you just wait for that to show up in tax receipts of that country before you make any decisions yeah so it's going to be a little bit of both so uh for us so vietnam to just to give you some background uh they don't have um local debt that is euro let me put it in plain english you can't trade their local debt um and they have very little dollar denominated bonds out there. So Vietnam is a very small part of what we look at. It's a much bigger equity story. But exactly what you were just talking about is Mexico. So um, I know I was on vacation in Mexico, but I was sort of working. Um, and uh, in, in different industries, it is now cheaper to produce in Mexico than China. Because mm-hmm. of shipping. Because of significant currency depreciation in Mexico significant tariff increase in China and logistics. I mean, as costs are as high as they are now, it's much cheaper to bring it in from Mexico. Now, um, that will not show up in the current account numbers, the foreign direct invest numbers for a couple of years, but you better believe it's playing in the mind of corporations in the United States who are right now trying to figure out where are they going to put their incremental uh, dollar of capital. And I'll bring you back to Economics 101, when you were in that back row in your T-shirt, hardly paying attention. Sleeping, yeah. Sleeping um, and probably copying off my notes. Um, the, the formula for potential growth. Actually, Ami, let me just throw it out there. You remember what the formula no. for potential growth is? Andrew, no. you know what it is? Uh, population growth, right? There, there's That's one of them, right? That's there. That's close to one of them. Uh, productivity gains, capital, labor. Andrew, you are you on Wikipedia right now? I'm not. No, I swear <laughs> I'm not. I'm thinking. No, am I? The am I sum of the like, average growth of labor input and capital input minus okay. how many people the cartel see, kill. I see if my CFA. I'm clawing in the back of my brain, but, and my my economics I, major is paying is. I is added the part about off. the cartel. Yes. So so Andrew was spot on after Ami's awkward silence. Um, it's rate of change of labor force plus a rate of change of capital spend, multi- that, that quantity multiplied by productivity. Yep. Um, and uh, the remember, emerging markets, we always are supposed to grow faster than the developed world because we have better demographics. Our labor force in emerging markets grows at a faster pace than the developed world. Um, the reason why Japan continues to slow to 0% growth is because they have no labor force growth uh, in that country. And that's been the case for a while. What I think some of your listeners might be surprised on is that although it just hit the headlines a couple months ago that China uh, just hit peak peak population, um, and so you'll see a declining population in China going forward, 
In fact, it was six years ago that their labor force peaked and has been declining for the last six years. By definition, by what we just talked about in terms of the formula, that is bringing, bringing down potential population growth in China, unless it's offset by one of the other two factors. The other two factors being capital spend uh, and productivity. Um, and so the attraction of EM, and this gets back to the, my, my thoughts earlier on Mexico, is that if producing in Mexico becomes longer term cheaper, part of that, again, is because of that depreciated currency, then hopefully that will result in higher foreign direct investment going into Mexico, which then results in higher capital spend, which then results in higher, product, uh, higher overall potential growth. And here's why this is so important is because I'm going to get a little political on me. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys do that on this show. We'll delete it out. Don't worry. Okay. Um, the last six years under Obama, so I'm taking out global financial crisis, the U.S. grew at 2.3% on average. The first three years under Trump, so I'm taking out COVID, the U.S. grew at 2.3%. So that is two completely different methods of managing the U.S. economy. One extreme left, one extreme right, or somewhere in the middle, however you de define yourself. And it had the exact same result, 2.3% for that nine-year period. And when you plug in into that formula that Andrew and I just talked about, uh, what, how fast the U.S. should be growing, you get a number of 1.8%. So no one on the right or the left is going to say this out loud, but this show is going to be a trailblazer. Those nine years were American exceptionalism years where this country grew significantly faster than it should have grown because of the policy choices of both of those administrations. And the policies were different. You need different policies at different times. Now, here's the problem with EM. When you do that same equation for the 76 countries in emerging markets, emerging markets should be growing between three and 4% every single year. And if you do the weighted average growth rate of these 76 countries that issue emerging market bonds, and remember China and India are smaller percentages of our indices, so your equity managers are gonna quote higher numbers. But these 76 countries grew at 6% in 2010, and they grew at 1.8% in 2020. So emerging markets went from two and a half times the growth rate of the United States to below the growth rate of the United States. And so I would simply ask you the question, if the US is gonna grow faster and higher than it should grow, versus emerging markets that are growing slower, both than the United States and what it should grow, where would you put your money? And the answer is the United States over the last 10 years. And that is the main reason why the dollar has been so strong, why the S&P has outperformed everyone else, both absolute and risk adjusted. And more importantly, because I think you guys are getting bullish on emerging markets, more importantly, looking forward, the only way you can call the bottom of emerging market currencies looking forward is you've got to call the bottom of the relative growth differential 
between EM and the U.S. So is the U.S. going to return back to potential, it, meaning going lower in terms of growth? Is EM going to get pulled up to its potential? And if so, what are the policy choices or the global macro developments that are going to result in that? And if the answer is yes, then absolutely EM will finally realize what we all know is its deeply discounted value. But it's not I love that. Yeah. that. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just I love that so much. I, I guess like, is there? I mean, obviously, it's probably the, the trillion dollar question, right? But is there like one or two, three things top of mind that could be the, in your view, that would be a catalyst to for that type of capital flow to to start to revert? I, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert in policy, but I'm I'm curious if there's anything that's kind of top of mind. Yeah. So there is something called the dollar smile theory. Andrew, since you got the potential GDP growth thing, right? You know what the dollar smile is? I do not. Okay. Felix, no. you want to throw something in there? <laughs> um, smile real big. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, guys. Okay. So there is this view uh, and, and um, I'm certainly a, a believer in it. So think of a smile. On the right-hand side of the smile is when the U.S. dollar appreciates versus everyone else. That's when the U.S. is outperforming the rest of the world in growth. That was what we've had from 2010 to 2021. U.S. is the best game in town. The dollar appreciates. Then there's the left-hand side of the smile. The dollar also appreciates. That is when you get flight to safety events. That's COVID, dollar spikes global financial crisis, dollar spikes. It doesn't even matter if the reason for the terror is in the United States. So global financial crisis, that was our problem, yet the dollar spiked. So flight to safety and U.S. outperforming the rest of the world, you want to be in U.S. dollar-denominated securities. The middle part of the smile or the bottom of the smile is when non-dollar currencies outperform. That is when the U.S. is growing at or below potential, but not a recession, and the rest of the world is growing faster. And that gets us to today. If the United States, actually, let me ask you guys this question, since you guys are U.S. experts. In, in your firm base case, uh, where do you think U.S. GDP is going to be this year versus next year? Probably in, in terms of in terms of growth rates, yeah, yeah no, growth. I, oh yeah, I mean it's gonna be it's gonna be slower this year and higher faster next year, in theory. Okay, so the the average estimate out there is that we're going to go, to go from a forty something year high in GDP growth in the United States, which is what we had last year, as a result of reopening, mm -hmm. as a result of stimulus, as a result of vaccines. And we're going to get to somewhere in the high twos, low threes in 2022. And we're going to get down to somewhere between 1.8 and 2 in 2023. This oh, the I Fed, see. So the linear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, was thinking, I was thinking the rate of change. Okay. Got it. Yep. And it's, it's the Fed's forecast and it's Wall Street consensus forecast. So the view is that that potential growth rate of the United States will act as a magnet and will bring us down. Remember what we're dealing with right now, which is a period of both fiscal contraction in the United States and monetary contraction. So we're going to go from a 13.5% fiscal deficit last year to something more on the order of a 3% fiscal deficit this year. That's a thousand basis points 
of fiscal contraction. The Fed just started hiking rates. I know you guys all believe they're going to hike seven times at least this year and take overnight rates sometimes somewhere to two and two and a half next year. So significant monetary contraction. They're also going to start quantitative tightening sometime in the next couple of months. So the, the balance sheet is going to shrink. And that those two impulses are going to bring growth down in the United States. If the result of this is what the base case is, which is that growth simply goes down to high ones next year, while commodity prices stay relatively high, while EM growth continues to go higher because of this positive term of trade shock, EM is going to outperform the U.S. based on that analysis. If, however, the Fed tips us into a recession, you go to the left-hand side of the dollar smile. That is not positive for emerging markets. It likely means that because U.S. growth goes negative in that scenario, that uh, demand for commodities goes significantly lower, which means that all that stuff emerging markets is exporting is going to have a lower price. There will be a negative terms of trade shock. Growth expectations will go lower in EM. And as a result of that, the dollar will rally and emerging market currencies will sell off. So the answer to the trillion dollar question is, are we going soft landing in the United States or are we going hard landing? Soft landing likely means EM outperforms uh, developed markets. Hard landing means you want to stay in dollar denominated securities. Okay. And I've got the answer, Ami. All right, everybody. We're going to stop there for time. Episode seven is going to be the dramatic conclusion to our interview with Arv Joshi, portfolio manager of Lazard's Emerging Market Fixed Income Fund. There's a lot more here, a lot more material, and a lot more learning. And from the end of this taping, we were all uh, jaws on the floor, so excited, so happy, and we hope you will be as well. See you next time on episode seven. Thanks very much. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.